have your phone on, could you turn it off, please? Um, I have a funny. I'm trying to find which funny I have. Yes, it's not that funny. But <clears throat> anyways, a pastor ended his temperance sermon by saying the world would be a better place if everyone poured out their beer their wine, and their whiskey into the river. And then he sat down, and the song leader stood up with a smile, saying, let's turn to him, 365, shall we gather at the river? (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, well, we live in a time and culture in church history that really takes little thought of the meaning of discipleship. If a person raised their hand and said a prayer when they were three or five or eight, They consider themselves to be a disciple even if there's been no real heart change as they grew up. Or if a person claims they love Jesus, they are thought to be his disciple because they have warm feelings about Jesus. But Jesus himself has much to say as to what it means to be his disciple, and I don't think his words line up with many of the people who fill churches today. There is a cost to be counted. There is a denial of self that is required to be a true follower of Jesus. Yes, salvation is a free gift by God's grace, but once that gift is received, it costs everything to be his disciple. And last time we saw Jesus and his disciples in Bethsaida, they'd left the village and taken a very long trip up to the most northern part of Israel, known as Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, Jesus decided to give his disciples a little oral exam, asking them questions. We read in chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, but some others, the prophets. And he continued to question them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. The answer that these men would give Jesus really would reveal their spiritual condition. And in truth, what they believe about Jesus determines their eternal destiny. There were a lot of popular opinions floating out there about Jesus among the Jewish people, just as there are a lot of opinions out there floating around today of who Jesus is. Jesus gets more personal with the men when he asks them what they believe. And Peter, really as a spokesman for the 12, says, you are the Christ. Christ in the Greek is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. They believed he was the promised Messiah. And this confession is the culmination of all that Jesus had been doing in his teaching, in his example, in his miracles. In spite of what public opinion was, they affirmed their belief was that he was the long-awaited-for promised Messiah. Of course, from their background, thinking about a Jewish Messiah would be one who's reigning as king from Jerusalem, so he would certainly have to get rid of Rome in order to be king, reigning out of Jerusalem. They did not understand the complete role of the Messiah, and so Jesus tells them they're not ready to tell others about him being the Messiah yet. Now, Jesus begins to speak very openly and plainly about the kind of Messiah that he really is. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
completely opposite of a reigning Messiah, Jesus was first to be the suffering Messiah. And all the religious leaders of Israel's would reject him. He would be killed and rise again on the third day. Jesus had spoken of these events before, but it had been somewhat veiled. Now he is very straightforward and clear, and now the disciples understand what he's saying. But this did not compute. So Peter, as spokesman for the 12, speaks up and tells Jesus, uh, he takes him aside and rebukes him. What a, what a moment. And Matthew tells us that Peter said, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter believes that he has to straighten the Lord out. After all, <clears throat> he believed Jesus was the Messiah and all of this negative talk about, you know, death and had no place in the kingdom from his mindset. So what Jesus now says to Peter was for all the disciples uh, who agreed with Peter and his thinking. And it is the strongest ever of language ever spoken to the disciples as Jesus turns around to face Peter and all of the men and says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. <clears throat> Jesus tells Peter to get out of his way. You are not going to stop me from going to the cross. Without realizing it, Peter was speaking as Satan's agent. Satan was using Peter to tempt Jesus with thoughts about bypassing the cross. This goes right back to the wilderness temptation at the start of his ministry where Satan tempted him in similar ways. Peter was actually opposing God's purposes because he was looking at the situation from man's perspective, not God's. He was thinking and reasoning like a man with just man's human wisdom, which kept him from seeing God's purposes for the death of the Messiah. <clears throat> Clearly, Peter and the disciples would be in big trouble. They'd be brokenhearted should Jesus be killed. And not to mention, by way of association, their lives would be in danger. How often, though, we are like Peter <clears throat> and focus on our purposes rather than the purposes of God. When self-interest becomes our focus, we really don't have a clear understanding of spiritual truth. As a disciple of Jesus, our focus must be on his plans, his interest, his will for our lives. Otherwise, we end up really opposing him. <clears throat> that is why it's critical that our thoughts and understanding be saturated with the word of God so that we have thoughts that are through the lens of scripture. We have such deceptive hearts that justify our own purposes and try to make it look spiritual without even realizing um, that the Lord must be in charge of his ways. He must be our authority, not our own plans. Peter had no idea he had actually become an instrument of Satan. Perhaps we have been guilty of the same thing time and again as we justify our priorities and our self-focus rather than lay them at the feet of our great God and say, whatever it is you want to do. Now, Jesus moves in to talk about the high cost of being a disciple. Jesus now calls everybody around, so it's the local people who have gathered. It's not just the disciples now. And he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will also be ashamed of when he comes 
in the glory of his father with the holy angels. So Jesus wants both unbelievers in the crowd as well as his own disciples to hear what he has to say. For the unbeliever, this message Jesus is giving is the message of salvation. And to the believers, it was an affirmation and a reminder of what he had been telling them all along about what it means to follow him. So understand, Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, means to come after me, to follow me, the way the disciples would follow their rabbi walking behind. Jesus now gives three requirements that are all bound up together that are necessary to be his disciple. Let him deny himself. This is not about denying yourself dessert for a month or no TV. Rather, it is a definite act of turning away from the idolatry of your being self-centered in your heart, saying goodbye to the old man who lives by self-interest. The word deny means to disown, to say no, to separate yourself from someone. It's the same word used by Peter about Peter when he denied that he even knew Jesus. To deny self is to reject the old way of life with self-interest and self-preoccupation. This means an unbeliever must recognize as well their sin and that they have no power to save themselves. Renounce self by refusing to rely on yourself to be saved. It also involves a turning your back on yourself so that you no longer rule your own life. This self-denial uh, of self continues as a believer daily as we surrender to Jesus as king of our lives. I mean, we make that commitment at a moment of our salvation, but you know it's a moment-by-moment battle to live this out. Take up his cross. This has been so misunderstood as well in this culture. You know, it's my cross to bear that I'm married to him, you know, or my cross to bear that I have a neuroma on my foot. Whatever it is, you know, it's a very misused expression as far as what it really means. The meaning of this statement is quite different. The first century readers and those listening to Jesus would have understood the figure of a condemned man who is forced to walk to his own place of execution while carrying his own cross, the very instrument of his execution, would be on his back. Of course, they did this most unwillingly, but to Christ's disciples, it means that we do this willingly. We are to voluntarily take up our cross, whatever the pain, whatever the persecution, whatever the rejection, whatever the shame, the embarrassment, and even possible death that may be required in doing so. There is to be a willingness to begin a death march the absolute surrender of our lives to Christ and a willingness to make any sacrifice for him, even if it does cost our life. Certainly not all disciples of Christ will die for their faith, but all disciples must be willing to die for him. The cross is for all who follow Jesus. He leads the procession as we, he carried his own cross and we follow behind doing the will of the Father wherever and however that may take us. Total surrender to the will of God. Of course, there are moments of failure in our life, but this truth is to characterize the gist of every disciple's life. Then Jesus said, follow me. This is in the present tense. We are to obey him. We are to have ongoing obedience. We are to be like Jesus by saying no to sin, ruling and being tempted by sin. We are to pick up our cross, follow Jesus, no matter where that may lead, even death. We are to renounce self and submit to Jesus and follow him. 
The other gospel accounts you're familiar with, I'm sure, are expanded on this where it talks about that our love and our loyalty to him must come above our love for our family, your spouse, your children, your parents. He must be your first love. He must be your first priority. So I don't know who or what is your first love. Uh, I don't know what consumes your thoughts, but that's a pretty good indicator. Is it self-interest, self-focus, interest, or things that really matter to the Lord? I came across this little story of a man who had a dream where he said he traveled to the celestial city and I was one of a great multitude which no man could number from all the countries and peoples, from times and ages. And I found myself next to a saint who had been there almost 1,900 years. And I said, who are you? And he said, well, I'm a Roman Christian. I lived in the days of the Apostle Paul. I was one of those who died in Nero's persecution. I was covered with pitch and fastened to a stake and set on fire to light up Nero's gardens. How awful, I exclaimed. No, no, I I was glad to do something for the Lord Jesus who died on a cross for me. The man on the other side then spoke. Well, I've only been in heaven a few hundred years. I came from an island in the South Seas. John Williams, a missionary, came and told me about the Lord Jesus, and I learned to love him. And my fellow countrymen killed the missionary, and then they caught and bound me. I was beaten until I fainted, and they thought I was dead, but I revived. But the next day, they killed me and cooked me, and ate me. Oh, how terrible, I said. No, no, I I was glad to die as a Christian. You see, the missionaries had told me that the Lord Jesus was scourged and crowned with thorns for me. Then they both turned to me and said, what did you suffer for him? Or did you sell what you had and give it to men like John Williams so they could go tell the lost about Jesus? And I was speechless. And while they were both looking at me with sorrowful eyes, I awoke, and it was a dream. But I lay on my bed, soft bed, awake for hours, thinking of the money I'd wasted on my own pleasure, my extra clothing, my many luxuries, and I realized that I did not know the words of the Lord Jesus, what they meant. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So now Jesus is going to explain reasons why it's worth the high price of being a disciple. Your eternal destiny is at stake. If you live your life to preserve your life, you will lose your life. But if you are willing to give up your life for Jesus' sake, you will save it. In other words, if your focus is to hold on to your life and gathering things to make your life so self-focused now, you will lose it later. But if you're willing to give it up now, you will preserve it forever. And I think what's really important to grasp here is that this is not talking about sanctification. This is... uh, not talking about being a committed believer. This is about being a genuine believer. The subject here is salvation. Eternity is at stake. The gospel message is a call to give your life away to Christ. And that's the beginning of losing your life. And it's only by losing your life that you can be saved. Jesus makes it clear that your soul is something that is priceless. If a person has everything they could ever want, all the money, all the beauty, all the fame, all the pleasures of this life. What benefit is that if you lose your soul for eternity? Possessions, wealth, all those things are perishable, but the soul, that inner part, that the real you who thinks and feels, that lives on forever. 
Even if you possess everything, nothing is as valuable as your soul. Everyone will have to give up all of their possessions one day anyway when they die, right? And then what? Eternal heaven, eternal hell. To focus on storing up treasures on earth is to live life like a fool. There is nothing more important than your soul. And then Jesus makes clear there is a coming judgment. In verse 38, it speaks of a time when he comes as judge, as his second coming. He will deal in judgment with those who rejected him and refused to be his disciples. Why would anyone be so foolish and refuse to be his disciple? Well, because they are, as Jesus said, an adulterous and sinful generation. There is a refusal to count the cost of personal rejection or giving up selfish ambition. True disciples are willing to be identified with Jesus. They will suffer the consequences of following him, even though at times there may be moments and lapses of failure. But that is not a purposeful, calculated plan to keep our faith hidden from everyone all the time. There is a willingness to follow Jesus in the heart of every true disciple. Any sacrifice made here in this life is not even worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed in his kingdom. And that brings us to the hope of the coming kingdom as we move into chapter 9. Jesus speaks about his coming kingdom, really, in verse 1. And he was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Certainly the disciples were a bit discouraged and perhaps confused by Jesus speaking about his imminent death. <clears throat> and he now encourages them with these amazing promises that some disciples would see the coming of his kingdom before they die. They would have a foretaste of his incredible glory. And so we read in verse 2 that Jesus took up the mountain with him, Peter, James, and John. This is about six days after Peter's confession and after this high call to discipleship that we've just looked at. They go up to possibly Mount Hermon. And we read, he was transfigured before them. This was a complete change. Jesus was metamorphosized, like that's where we get the word from. The inside came to the outside, revealing his glory. It's as if Christ pulled back his flesh and all that glory was shining through his prehuman form. The light from his glory was overwhelming, and these men saw a glimpse of what Christ will look like when he returns to earth in power, riding back in the skies, lighting up the skies, and setting up his kingdom at his second coming. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. This assured these disciples that this suffering Messiah would one day return as a reigning Messiah. You're going to see him suffer, but you're catching a glimpse of what you will see in the future. When there is a high cost to pay to be his disciple, we have to remember the incredible future that awaits every true disciple. Then Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Suddenly these two men, dead for centuries, appear, and they're recognized by name. Moses is synonymous with the Old Testament law, and Elijah was one of the great prophets. So together they represent the law and the prophets who predicted the glorious reign of the Messiah and his kingdom. Not only did they speak of his glory, but they also referred to his death and sufferings. 
In Luke 9.31, we read that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were speaking about Christ's death, about his departure from his body of humiliation to his glorified body. There can be no future kingdom, though, without the cross first. At the cross, the payment for sin, for sinners, was made. And all the Old Testament saints had looked forward to that by credit. It was something in the future where we look back. The disciples needed to understand that a suffering Messiah was part of God's divine plan, and it was spoken of in the law and the prophets. There were two separate comings, and these three disciples caught just a glimpse of the glory of Christ in the kingdom to come. Peter would never forget this. None of these men would. As Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1.19, that we have a prophetic word made more sure. Jesus will come again. And then there's the voice of the Father. Peter is terrified. And, you know, some people, when they get nervous, just start rambling and uh, talking. So Peter just starts talking. Let's, let's get tense and we'll all stay here. <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, but then a cloud formed and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. In Matthew's account, the men all fell on their faces, much afraid. And Jesus touched them and said, get up, don't be afraid. And suddenly, it was just the four of them all alone. The radiance was no longer visible, but the message was very clear. Listen to what Jesus says. He will return in glory one day. This is great motivation and encouragement for every believer to be consistent as a disciple who follows who sacrifices, who dies to your own self-centered ways every day because one day he will return and he will reign as king. And Peter reminds us about the promise of a new heaven and a new earth after this present one is destroyed and renewed by fire. And then he says, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. This is motivation for us to die to self, to live even when it's difficult in a way that pleases him because we know our future. Well, ladies, this life is so brief and temporary. And you know what? The heartache that comes with it is brief in light of all of eternity. In light of all Jesus taught about our future home and glory that we will share with him, we can endure this time on earth as his disciples, whatever that may bring. Well, as they walked out back down the mountain, Jesus told them not to speak of this experience until the Son of Man rose again. That must have been really hard, not to say anything to the other guys. Keep it. So, but they did. <clears throat> and uh, let's see. Jesus conquered death. He conquered the grave and the bondage of sin and the fear of death only when he would rise from the dead. And that's why this had to be wait, uh not talked about till after that was accomplished. As Jesus returns to the crowd, he finds the other disciples are in an argument with the scribes. They had been unable to cast out a, a demon from a particular young boy who had been tortured his entire childhood. The father then wonders, since his followers couldn't do it, uh, if Jesus is capable. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus answered, if you can... All things are possible to him who believes. And immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. 
Jesus answers his father by making it clear that it wasn't a question of whether he had the ability or the power to heal this boy, but whether this man had the faith. It was wrong of this man to doubt Jesus, just as it's wrong of us to doubt Jesus and doubt his power to accomplish his will. We actually limit God when we doubt his ability and his power to do the impossible, like soften a loved one's heart that is so hardened to the gospel. This is not to be misunderstood as many have uh, done by claiming God is required to do whatever it is we demand and believe he should do. Uh, I spoke the word, so it must happen. I actually have a neighbor in my neighborhood who professes to be a believer, and we were talking one day. If lightning were in the sky, I would have stepped away from her. But anyway, she was telling me as caring for her dying mother in her home that she just had to tell God what he had to do because her mom had lost her sight and she just gave an ultimatum to God. You either give her her sight or you, you, you take her now. And she did die. And uh, she thought, you know, the words that the way she said it to me was, <laughs> oh my word, that was really shocking. But that is a mindset of many today who say, if you, have the, you speak the word of faith and it must happen, God's obliged to obey you. Like he's some kind of genie in a bottle to do our bidding. What we ask for must be within the limits of his will. It must be based on his word. It must uh, often is a burden that God puts on our heart to pray for an individual or a situation or a crisis. And we're to believe when we pray what we are asking for. Just, I mean, you know, you think about Peter knocking at the door and not able to get in as they're all praying for his release. How often we're just like that. You think about as a parent, if your children never believed anything you said, we're going to take you to Disney. Well, I don't really believe you're going to do that. We're going to go to the park. You're not going to do that. I don't believe you're going to do I mean, that would be very hurtful and very disturbing as a parent. And uh, we come to the Lord with these heavy burdens in a heart, and then we don't really believe he's going to do it. And he's not going to answer. He's not going it's, to. It's terrible. Faith really matters to the Lord. As When you study the Gospels, it's so clear. Well, these disciples had now met up for the first time with failure in their ministry. We see from the incident with the father that there's no place for unbelief and doubt when we come to the Lord. And we see from the men in their failure, there's no place for prayerlessness. In verse 28, the disciples wanted to know what's the reason they failed to have this demon be cast out. There are different ranks and orders of demons, and clearly the one who possessed this boy would not come out without prayer. And I thought, how often we go about our day, our work, our ministry in our home, in our church, and do so without the power of prayer. We're just going through the motions. We're just doing what it is that we do. And we fail to be utterly dependent on him in prayer. If Jesus failed in their ministry because of a lack of prayer, why would we think that we are any different? Well, we have definitely run out of time to cover this entire chapter properly. There are messages available on the website where you can listen to our messages if you want a more thorough uh, listening to the rest of the passage. But I think the most important question from what we looked at today is, are you really his disciple? Has your own heart deceived you? Do you follow after Jesus by obeying his word? Is denying yourself the normal part of your everyday life? Have you taken up his cross? Are you following Jesus with that same attitude of a willingness to do the will of the Father 
no matter what. Have the people and the things of this world become too important to you and drawn you away from your first love and your devotion to Christ? I think of the book of Revelation where Jesus said, you've lost your first love. I mean, our hearts are just so prone to wander off and do that. And I hope you'll take some time today, you know, and just be quiet before the Lord and ask him to show you the condition of your own heart and what needs to change. What are your values? What is the most important thing? We must give our all to the one who gave his life for us. You know what? In his presence is fullness of joy. There isn't fullness of joy in a relationship, in a possession, in any of those things. It is in the Lord. And until we are actually in his presence, we must be a faithful disciple and follower of him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you love us. I thank you for the free gift of salvation. I pray that we would not be flippant about that gift. It cost you everything, and it is a gift that will cost us everything. I pray that you will deal with our own hearts as you dealt with mine as I've prepared this. Just sit back and have to reevaluate what is important to me. And I pray that each lady here will take the time to meet with you in prayer and to seek your heart of maybe things that aren't in order that need to come back to having you as our first love, our first devotion, and our willingness to do anything for you. In Jesus' name, amen.